So Ephesians 3 and the first 13 verses. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given, to, given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Thanks, Caleb. Uh, it's really good if you can keep your Bible open there at Ephesians 3. Uh, if you're new or newish here, we are making our way through this uh, letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in the uh, first century, uh, thinking about what he says about our identity, uh, who we are in Jesus Christ. Um, one of the things that you may notice if you receive our weekly email uh, is that as that goes out, I'm no longer putting a little blurb of, about what the sermon's on uh, each week. Um, but rather, there are some questions there to encourage us to read the passage beforehand and think for ourselves about what it might be saying and pray uh, for Sunday and for this time uh, when we look at God's Word together. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't begun that already, uh, to make the most of that opportunity. Um, I've had some feedback from some people who are finding it very useful uh, even as a family devotion on a Thursday or a Friday night, just to kind of read the passage and think about it together. So maybe um, that's something you might want to think about doing. Before we get into it, let's pray and ask that God would be the one speaking to us. <clears throat> Lord God, we do thank you now that we get this opportunity uh, to have your word uh, open in front of us. And we thank you that you speak to us through your word still today. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry and the work of your, your Holy Spirit and how he uh, brings these words to our minds and to our hearts and through them uh, he changes us. And we pray, Lord, that you would send him and he would do that this morning. Be at work in my speaking and in our hearing uh, that Jesus may be honored uh, and his kingdom built up. We ask this in his wonderful name. Amen. Uh, now, Ian Fleming is very well known uh, to a lot of people for writing the James Bond books uh, from which the films came. But Ian Fleming uh, actually had a hidden talent. Uh, Ian Fleming was himself a spy during World War II. 
Uh, during that time, he was involved in a number of different projects for the Navy, uh, including one which was called Operation Golden Eye. Uh, it was a plan, a secret plan, to defend Gibraltar uh, in case Spain joined, the, uh, joined Nazi Germany uh, in World War II. He had the secret talent that not many people knew about. He was actually a spy. Um, Nostradamus. Uh, he was famous for supposedly being able to predict the future, uh, being able to announce events before that they happened. Uh, but Nostradamus had a hidden secret talent. Uh, Nostradamus was actually a cook of some notoriety, and he produced several cookbooks. Uh, one of them was actually called uh, A Treatise on Makeup and Jam. Uh, this book included his own recipe for love jam, um, which I would have to describe at a different time slot uh, than this one. Uh, there were all sorts of recipes for uh, different things that don't usually make it into cookbooks today, such as the cure for the plague, um, several laxative recipes based on rhubarb and roses, um, and even a method, a meal, for turning your hair blonde. Who knew? Nostradamus had a hidden talent. Now, I wonder if any of us here dream that we have a hidden, undiscovered talent. I wonder if you've ever dreamed that one day you wake up and you realize that you can write the most amazing, incredible poetry. Or maybe one day you'll sit down and write the next best-selling novel that there is. Or maybe you dream that one day you'll wake up and you'll discover you had the secret talent to play the guitar incredibly. Or to run a marathon like a Kenyan. Or to, I, I don't know, uh, accomplish great feats of science. Do you ever wonder that you had, wish you had a hidden talent? Well, this morning, this morning I'm going to suggest that all of us together have a hidden talent talent. We can do something together which is absolutely unique. It's unique in the world, it's unique throughout history, and it's unique in the plans and the purposes of God. Something that we don't often appreciate that we can do. Now, as I said before, we're continuing to wake our way through this letter to the Ephesian church. And it's under the title, Who Do We Think We Are? Because really, in this letter, Paul the Apostle is giving us a new identity. Not necessarily a new identity individually, but a new identity together. Now, last week when we looked at the previous passage at the end of chapter 2, uh, we, the focus was on who Christ has made us to be together. The work of Jesus in making us particularly the new family of God and the holy temple in which God lives by his spirit. That's who we are as a church. That's our new identity in Christ. Now in chapter 3 verse 1, Paul begins to explain a prayer that he has for them on the basis of that. So if you ever look at chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of the Gentiles, and then he's about to launch into a prayer, but he stops. Notice there's a little dash there. All of a sudden, Paul takes 
a sidetrack. And it's a sidetrack that he doesn't finish up until verse 14, which on me, for me is on the next column. Uh, for 13 verses, uh, he goes off on a tangent, and then he'll come back to the prayer in verse 14, and we're going to be looking at that uh, next Sunday. But this sidetrack, this is not, this is not Paul being away with the fairies. This is not like granddad who starts telling a story and then he gets sidetracked to another story and then another story and another story. This sidetrack is very particular and it's very important because what he is doing is he is outlining in these verses the wonderful eternal purposes of God. He says that in verse, uh, verse 10, uh, sorry, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in these verses, he explains the eternal purposes of God in Christ, the eternal purposes of God then in himself, the apostle, and then the eternal purposes of God in the church. Now, that first part of it was really our focus last week, the eternal purposes of God in Christ. And he reiterates that in verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the eternal purpose of God that Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, black and white, intelligent and not so intelligent, uh, would be united together in Christ, in the one family, as the one living temple. Now that was the focus that we, we, we looked at last week in depth. So this week we're going to have a look at the next two parts of that eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose in Paul the Apostle, and then God's eternal purpose in the church, which is you and me. And that's going to have our hidden secret talent in it. So let's start then with the eternal purpose of God in and through the Apostle Paul. Now, often in Paul's letters, uh, he has a little passage or a little part of it where he talks about himself. He talks about his ministry. He talks about what God has called him to do. And if we view that in isolation, sometimes it seems a little bit egotistical. And then a lot of the times it seems to be quite irrelevant for us today. But I'm going to suggest that it's not at all. In this little kind of autobiographical section, Paul is often giving one of the keys to understanding the letter. He is defending himself as an apostle and he is explaining his work and why it is that he can be writing to this church. And he's doing that here in these verses. Look at what he says about himself. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. He's saying, I'm here, the apostle, in prison for you Gentiles. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 2. He talks about, at the end of that verse, the stewardship of God's grace that was given uh, to me for you. Now, remember the last week we talked about this 
house or family of God, and we, we did this was a particular Greek word that keeps reappearing. Here's another one. It's in the word steward. Uh, this is somebody in the house who has been given a task, a responsibility by the master of the house. What, what's Paul saying? In the family of God, the master, God himself, has given me a special task and a special responsibility for you, for you Gentiles. Well, what is that special task and what is that special responsibility? Verse 4 talks about then, made my insight into the mystery of Christ. In verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. God has entrusted or stewarded to Paul the mystery. What's the mystery? We've looked at it before. The mystery that the Gentiles, non-Israel, is included into the family and the people of God. God has entrusted this mystery to Paul and the other apostles that he talks about, and he's given it to them for the sake of the Gentiles. He then goes on to talk about it further in verse 7, further about the task that he's given. Verse 7 says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. That word minister really is, is, is talking about Paul as a servant, a servant of the gospel. I'm not real keen on, on the title minister uh, anymore because of some of the connotations um, that it has. But its original form, its original meaning is servant, servant of God, servant of the gospel. Now, what did he do as servant of the gospel? Well, he goes on to explain in verse 8. Uh, sorry, verse, yep, verse 8. Uh, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, you and I, we have we've probably had that experience before where um, around about dinner time, uh, someone comes and knocks uh, on the door of the house, don't they? Uh, and you go and you open the door... And there is somebody with a clipboard and a lanyard um, who just wants five minutes of your time and is not going to sell you anything. Yeah, right. Um, They're usually from a solar company uh, or maybe a gas and electricity company, and they flash you this badge as quick as you can. And what do they do? They say who they are, and they say where they're from, and they tell you, not quite honestly, um, what they are there for. Now, why do they do that? They do that because we are skeptical of people who knock unannounced on our doorstep. They are doing that to establish their credentials as legitimate, as authentic representatives of that company. Now, what's, what's Paul doing here in Ephesians 3? He's not doing it in a sneaky way at all. He is showing us his credentials as an apostle of God to bring the word, the message of the mystery of God and the eternal purposes of God to his people, to Gentiles. As as he writes this, he is saying, you can listen to me. You can hear 
the instruction that I bring you. You can take this seriously because I'm not coming to you of my own accord, on my own behalf. I am coming to you as the steward, the servant of God, given the role of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ and making known the mystery of the plan of God. Now, he's doing that for the Ephesians. But I want to suggest that he's also doing that for us here today. Now, there's two injustices that I think we can do uh, with the ministry of Paul. One of them is that we can deify almost Paul and what he does. You, you know, we, we know that this is heresy, but we, we can kind of think of the Trinity as kind of being the Father, the Son, and Holy Paul. Um, he, he's so wonderful uh, in the things that he did. Paul would be horrified, horrified by that. You notice how, how Christ-focused he, he is here? You know how, how he said, shows this mystery was revealed to me? This ministry was given by God's grace to me. He says, even though I am the least of all of the saints, he's just got this deep conviction of his own sinfulness and unworthiness that everything that he does and everything that he has is a gift of the grace of God. There is no place for, for thinking of Paul as some sort of demi or, or semi-god. He is a steward. He is a servant of God by the gift of God's grace. The other injustice that we can do with the ministry of Paul, and on the other end, is that we can make his ministry the same as everybody else's ministry. So whatever Paul did, you and I should be doing as well, and particularly pastors should be doing as well. But again, that's in the wrong direction. Paul is unique in the calling that he has. He was and he is the ministry or the apostle to the Gentiles. He has a special role, along with the other apostles, of revealing the great plan and the mystery of God, of laying the foundation upon which Christ will continue to build his church. There are lots of things about Paul we can and we should imitate. But his role as an apostle is not one of them. It's not one for every follower. It's not even one for pastors. It is unique. You see, sometimes there's this uh, temptation uh, to say things like, I love Jesus. I love what he said. Uh, it's real hard for people. I'm not so keen on Paul, though. Yeah, he was a bit stodgy and a bit old-fashioned old and a bit stern to me. Not at all. Paul is appointed by the risen Christ to be a steward of this mystery, to preach the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ, to reveal what was hidden, and to lay a foundation upon which Christ will build his church. You see, Paul was not just 
the apostle to the apostle to the Gentiles then. He's the apostle to the Gentiles still today. He's our apostle. He's the one that God used to lay a foundation on which he would continue to build and strengthen his church. When he speaks the mysteries of Christ, when he records them, he records them for us. When he announces the grand plan of God through all of creation and for all of eternity, he announces them for us. We're to listen and hear and be shaped by the words that God had recorded through him, our apostle. We are to build on the foundation that he slayed. Christ is building on the foundation which Paul and the other apostles laid. You see, we become... We become the temple of the living God as and only as we are built on that foundation. You know, uh, some of us have been involved in uh, building houses before. And we know what it's like when you come to, uh, to lay the slab. You put this concrete platform down. And right there, you, you get to see the outline of, of what the house is going to look like. And you get to see some of the dimensions and and how it's going to look on the property. And it's when and only when the house is built on that foundation that it takes the shape that it should. No one lays a foundation and, go, and goes and builds on a plot of sand next to it. That would be ridiculous. It would fall over. It would collapse. It wouldn't be the house that it was designed to be. As a church, we are to be built on this foundation. The foundation of God's revealed world through his apostles. We're to listen and obey and remember. If we go building a church of a different nature, of a different kind, one that doesn't, doesn't reflect the plan and the purposes of God, we'll be building a church that is bound to fail, is bound to collapse, that won't have the shape and the impact that God designed it to have. We'll take seriously the mystery that was revealed through him. That people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language are part of the family of God now and forever. Well, that really brings us to the second part that we're going to consider of this great plan this morning. So far, we've considered Jesus... Uh, his work in uniting uh, those who were separate. We've considered the work of the Apostle Paul, proclaiming the mystery, revealing the mystery. Finally, then, we're going to look at the role and the work of the church in that great plan. And here comes the point of the hidden talent, which you and I have. And it's a flow-on from Paul's ministry, and it's there in verse 2. There in, sorry, there in verse 10. He proclaims, he reveals, verse 10, have a look, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, a couple of questions there. What does he mean by the, by the manifold wisdom of God? 
Well, the word there for manifold really means multifaceted, uh, multi-dimensional, uh, uh, multicolored. It's even the same word uh, that was used in their Bibles for the Joseph's coat, uh, the multicolored coat. What's he saying? Is He's saying the wisdom of God is maybe a little bit like a diamond. A diamond with so many angles and, and so many ways to look at it. And it, it reflects light in every single direction. This wisdom of God, it covers, it, it covers absolutely everything that there is. This plan of God throughout history for every single person and place and time. For every single part of, the, of our lives, for every single part of the church. This wisdom of God impacts and it shapes and you, the church, he's saying, you make that known. You, through you, the plan, the mystery, the wisdom of God is being declared. Now, the second question is, well, to who is it being declared? And it says here, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, uh, if you want to Google this afternoon and you want to waste a bit of time, Google what this means uh, because there are a lot of opinions out there. I'm going to narrow it down to just two. Basically, it does talk about unseen spiritual forces. Um, that, that, that much everybody pretty much agrees with. The question is, are they good spiritual forces uh, such as angels or are they evil spiritual forces such as demons or, or things like that? And uh, the first one, the idea is that we, the church, declare to the angels what is the plan, the wisdom, the mystery of God. Wonderful calling to make that known. In the second one, we declare to the forces of evil what the plan and the purposes of God is. Now, I think on balance, and I'm going to show you why, it's the latter one. And the reason why is comes from later on in the letter in Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to turn over there, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 12. It says this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? The rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. Now, it uses two of the same, exactly the same words uh, in Ephesians chapter 3. So here, here's what it's saying. As the word of God shapes the church, works in the church, the words recorded by the apostles, as it, the church lives out this great, wonderful truth of who God is and what he's doing in the world and what he's recreating. Through us, evil spiritual forces are getting a lesson in the eternal plans and the purposes of God. Now, has it, anybody ever told you uh, that you can't do something? And have you ever set out to prove somebody wrong before? When someone says, oh, you, you'll never get into that course. Well, I'm going to show you. Uh, you can't play that sport. You just, 
you just watch me. You can't run that marathon. Well, I probably can't, but I'm going to give it a pretty good, uh, going, to, going to give it a pretty good crack. Have, have you ever kind of like, when you've done it then, you've kind of like tried to, mm-hmm, can you, you see what I did there? Uh, yeah, we've done this, haven't we? This, this, is, this is kind of, this is what kind of what God is doing through the church. He's holding up his plans and his purposes. And he's saying to the spiritual forces of evil, unseen in this world, you lose. You lose. You want to take these people and you want to tear them apart. You want them to hate each other and to backstab each other. You want them to exclude people. You want them to abuse each other. But look at what is happening. They're living together. They're loving each other. They're caring for each other. You lose. You don't win. You won't win. You're on the way out. When a church lives in and realizes the plans and the purposes of God, God declares to unseen spiritual forces of evil that he is victor, that he wins, that the curse is undone. Because people aren't just made right with God. In Christ, people are made right with each other. Every time, every time we welcome a new person into this family, we announce the victory of Jesus and the defeat of Satan. Every time we choose to forgive someone who has hurt us, we announce the victory of Jesus and the defeat of evil spiritual forces. Every time we include someone who is different from ourselves, God is saying to evil forces, you will not win. You have been defeated. Every time you and I, we use our time and our energy and our talents to encourage another follower of Jesus, and to spur them on, and we give ourselves sacrificially, Christ announces his victory in and through the church. And as those spiritual forces unseen are defeated and undone, incredibly and amazingly, people are set free. People are set free from their sin and come to know healing and freedom that is found in Jesus. People are set free from evil and from selfish ambition and are included in the family, the living temple, the body of Jesus. And so when we say, as a church, when we say we want to welcome 
We want to welcome new people well. We want to enfold them and speak to them and hug them into the family. This is why we do it. Because it announces the victory of Jesus and the defeat of evil. When we challenge each other to forgive one another in Christ as Christ has forgiven us, when we challenge each other to put the hurt aside and to choose to deal with people in love, this is why we do it. Because Christ is announcing through us that he is bigger than our hurt, he is bigger than the sin against us, that he is a God of forgiveness and grace, that he defeats what is evil and sinful. When we train each other and we spur each other on to encourage and grow disciples, to speak the word of God to one another, this is why we do it. Not so that we will have a better club for Christians, but because in doing this, Jesus announces his victory to the world. And in doing this, he sets people free. This is the amazing eternal purposes of God in Christ. The barrier broken down. People united. Announced, declared, made known by Paul. Made known now in the church to spiritual forces of evil. Let's pray together, shall we?